Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 30 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, we'll be talking about all things professional golf, Tiger Woods in particular. We might also touch on a bit of golf media, some general state of the game stuff as well, when we welcome one of the game's most respected and influential writers to the panel. Very exciting stuff. However, before we meet today's guest, let me introduce my co-hosts, writer, critic, commentator, author, blogger, course architect, all-round good guy, episode 30, Jeff Shackelford. They said we'd never make it. Look at us go. Uh, it is really remarkable. I'm st- I'm still not sure about your math on that. I'm going to look into it, but great to be here. I checked on the website. And we're, oh, wow. Well, according to the okay. list, we're up to episode 30, Perfect. so I was very careful about that. From uh, looking forward to getting your thoughts and input today. From here in Australia, course designer, commentator, critic, analyst, former player, although the last two weeks, two wins on the Australian Legends Tour, Clates. I know you're playing it down, but a win is a win. Congratulations, mate, and good to have you aboard. Uh, uh, thank you, Rod. It's uh, always good to... Play when you're just a little bit nervous. You need to kind of birdie the last hole, which I did twice, which was interesting. Well, we didn't know that. Well done. Good work to you. And, well done. Uh, Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, good to have you aboard. Our special guest today, gents, one of the game's most respected writers and authors. As I said, he was the 2012 recipient of the PGA of America's Lifetime Achievement Award, co-author of The Big Miss with Hank Haney in his day job. He's editor of the popular Golf World magazine and a senior writer for Golf Digest in the US. Great pleasure to welcome Jaime Diaz to the show. Jaime, great to have you along. Thanks for taking some time. No, it's my pleasure, Rod. Thank you, and congratulations, Mike. Uh, especially those two birdies. That's uh, good, good in the memory bank. I know the memory may not serve you another ten years, but for the time you have left competitively, I hope that, that's uh, right. Well, it's a good memory. Yeah, I think that that's two more birdies you've made in the last fortnight than I have. So uh, congratulations to you, Jaime. On to uh, on to golf of uh, some more import and certainly of some higher profile. The reason we got you on today, you, you wrote a terrific piece for the upcoming issue of Golf Digest about Tiger Woods. You, of course, used to sit down with Tiger. Once a year, back in the day when uh, when he was uh, on the on the staff there at Digest, but you've done this piece for for the upcoming issue. You've spoken to a bunch of you know, legends of the game, I guess, about Tiger and sort of where he is. He still is the most intriguing, probably person in all of sport, but certainly within golf. Tease out a little bit for me, or just just sort of recap what that sort of story is about and uh, and what it was like putting it together because it's a it, it really is a great read. Well, thank you, Rod. Uh, you know, it uh, the story is basically about the most obvious question: and will uh, will Tiger catch Jack? Which you know, it's kind of ad nauseum to a lot of people, but it's also probably the most popular sort of water cooler conversation uh, in, 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 in America, certainly uh, on sports. And so we took a fresh look at it. I mean, so much has happened to Tiger since uh, 2009. These last four years have been, you know, just uh, full of changes and, and unexpected, you know, incredible dips and, 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 and also some, some great, I think, uh, uh, triumphs for him, too. So, where is he? Uh, that's really where we're at uh, in, in this story. And, you know, he had a very good year, obviously. Uh, he won five times. He's a player of the year. He, he led in the stroke average. There's so many things he still does very, very well. I and mean, he's probably undisputably the best player. I mean, he got back to number one earlier this year. Uh, in many ways, a landmark year for him. And as Gary Player said in the story, you know, in its own way, and I'm sure there's be some people would say this, would dismiss this, but I think I see his point, that, you know, in its own way, as as impressive a comeback as Hogan made from his bus accident, uh, because Tiger suffered a trauma too, and and so there's a lot of I think good energy uh, for Tiger going forward, and yet he didn't win a major, and his performance in majors wasn't particularly good, especially on the weekends. Mm. So we just took a closer look at all that, and actually there is sort of a trend where he hasn't played that well on weekends, even in regular tournaments. Uh, 
his scoring average on Saturdays and Sundays is far down uh, on the PGA rank in that ca- in those categories, which is surprising because he he routinely led those or was never worse than second or third, and so that speaks to something perhaps uh, having having to do with pressure, having to do with confidence, having to do with uh, how he handles you know the biggest moments, which he always used to be the best at. And for this story, unlike the others, where I had a lot of time with Tiger, actually a lot, I mean, relatively speaking, you know, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour sometimes, um, you know, no access, uh, direct access. And we talked instead and, and leaned on some giants, as you, as you mentioned, uh, Jack Nicholas in particular, who is, you know, the most uh, scrutinized uh, person in terms of what he did now. I mean, in some ways, what Tiger's doing is, is the best thing that's ever happened to Jack record because it's, it's gotten more more appreciation actually i think than ever uh, and then gary player and lee trevino and ray floyd was very good to talk to us uh paul azinger uh all of them i thought had well they all they were all quite candid uh surprisingly so because it's a difficult thing to be candid about tiger it puts a puts a public figure and especially another player in a tough spot so it, it was more a story about you know expressing what the facts were from this year and then some commentary from people, players who've been there, so to speak. I mean, all these guys are multiple major champions except for Paul. Paul's, I think, you know, a very insightful uh, guy at the top of the game. I mean, he was uh, arguably the best player in the game in 93. So he's he understands some of the pressures, too. And, and I just think that he's more free, too, because he's not competing anymore and he doesn't have uh, maybe the same sort of reputation and and baggage when he when he speaks about uh, a player and and so his his insights were very good i thought mm. but anyway i don't, I don't mean to go on too long I, it was just one of those stories where we put it together uh more leaning on the on on the biggest names and the, and hopefully the most qualified people to sort of judge tiger even though it's all speculative it's still i think where they're something that they actually uh, have a lot of credibility in mm. Shaq, you had a question which I was intrigued by, which, which we, you were, we were talking about before we came on air today, about uh, about just people speaking about Tiger. Fire away at Jaime. I'm so, oh, about Jeff's question? Yeah, Shaq, are you with us? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. The, yes. Um, I, mean, I did put uh, you to sleep, yeah. Are you sorry. paying yeah, no, bills? No, 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 no. I was deep in thought. I was, I was actually looking at something in the article, and I hit the mute button because I didn't want to be heard flipping pages uh, right. on the, in well the background, done. you know. Um, Far away. Did you go in knowing that you would get more people to speak, or was that your sense that, uh, and, and this comes out in the story, that his aura has changed, and therefore people are just now less afraid to uh, express their views about uh, uh, the state of his game. Well, I, it's a good question. I didn't expect anything. I, I, my expectations were low, uh, simply because it is complicated for, especially you know, someone like Jack, who's who's directly related to this story uh, or related to the issue, uh, to speak candidly about Tiger. So I was only hopeful, and I tried it with each of my sort of. Uh, uh, introductions about the story and, and my request to, for the interview to to make sure they understood that I that I had a sense of how uh, complicated it might be for them and if they if they said no I understood so I, I wanted to be empathetic about the sensitive and I know maybe this sounds like it's overstated but it's just a tough tough thing for anyone to speak out about Tiger especially critically or or negatively in any way because they become a target immediately uh, you know. The sports world and golf world in particular is, 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 is starved for news about Tiger. Tiger gives you very little. And when anyone with credibility and, and, and stature speaks about him, 
Uh, it's always news, and it puts that person on the spot uh, to defend what they say, especially if it's critical. Having said that, Jeff, you made a good point that I think enough time's gone by now, and it's sort of just a such a, uh, a, a, a common topic among everyone in sports that I think these guys all felt freer about expressing their opinion. And even Jack, I thought, although he was probably the most careful, had a certain relaxed and, and uh, expansive, uh, I thought, uh, uh, discourse about Tiger, which was, you know, greatly appreciated and, and, and I think helped the story. Jack, of course, got caught out again last year, didn't he, Jaime? He said something, I think it was at the Masters, he mentioned that he hasn't, he doesn't often speak in depth with Tiger, and of course it made a headline on the other side of the yeah, world just, within you know, minutes. I mean, there was an, exactly. What was, that was an innocuous comment in his mind, probably. Hmm. Although I know he, he probably has heard that, oh, you and Tiger must trade notes and stuff, and maybe he wanted to set the record straight, but just saying that hmm. became a flashpoint. Hmm. And, and that's, that's the world... Uh, that Tiger, you know, creates. Uh, if you if you go into his world, it can be, it can be, uh, it can be problematic. Yeah, you get caught. Well, look how the Brandel Shambly situation is turning now. It's it, what's happened to today. It's clear they they want blood. They want, <laughs> I think they want him uh, fired from the Golf Channel. I think he's really gotten to them. Uh, uh, I don't know what your sense is, but that that to me is really fascinating. I thought they had a chance to kind of let it. Uh, go away and everybody move on, and it's like they're uh, they're digging in. Yeah, you're right, Jeff. I mean, they, they did say we just want to go forward. Both Tiger and and Mark Steinberg said we just want to go forward. However, we it, now it's up to the Golf Channel what to do. <laughs> well, that's an ominous comment, you know. It's, yeah. So they didn't spell it out, but it was it was not a needed comment unless they actually had a purpose uh, behind saying it. And you know, I, I think Tiger really is upset, and I think he feels now he's got public opinion on his side that he was wronged uh you know brandle apologized so that weakened his position and you know it's not like tiger and and uh, at this moment to be magnanimous towards someone that he's probably had a lot of rancor towards over the years and he's like you said i think he's going for i don't know about the jugular but he's going to hurt you know he's going back to, to get even a little bit and uh you know it, it'll be interesting to see how the, how the golf channel reacts uh i think brandle's in a tough spot because uh he actually admitted that he overstepped and whether that's i mean i think that was big of him but it also weakens him in terms of you know how to how to sort of defend himself now if if tiger comes after him lawyers have a field day with the apology don't they (laughs) yeah you've admitted you've absolutely admitted that you were wrong the interesting one of the interesting things about that i mean we're going to chat about media and whatnot later probably not so much in this sense but of course the comments that chambly made were in on golf.com a uh, a publication and media organisation completely unrelated to the Golf Channel, who now look like they're going to pay the price, in a sense, um, for what he has written elsewhere. That, to me, is really intriguing. He never said any of this on Golf Channel, but, of course, they're the ones who are going to be punished, quote-unquote, by the Woods camp. Yes, you're right. And, uh, you know, it, it, the golf, golf.com, you know, got all the buzz and Golf Channel got all the blame. <laughs> so, yeah. it, it's, not, it's not quite... Uh, fair probably uh, by the golf channel's perspective and they don't like they didn't like drawing attention to the story because mm. uh, they don't like writing about their own people if they don't have to and especially since it appeared somewhere else but Brandle is he is identified as as a golf channel mm. guy because the, the comments he's made that have had the most impact over time have have been on the air live and and, and Brandle's in fearless and and you know I think Brandle's got a lot of guts uh, you know he he goes out there he takes on Tiger Woods when no one else will you know some of the criticism of him by his critics, so to speak, would be that, you know, he has carved out a niche and now he's playing to it. I'm not so sure of that. I, I think he just wants to be the guy 
who doesn't look like he is cowed. And, uh, you know, he's an ex-player, and, and he's got credibility, and he talks to a lot of players, and he studies, and he does a lot of – he's taken a million lessons. He knows the golf swing very well. I mean, he's very credible, in my opinion. Now, whether you agree or not, um, at least, you know, he's, a, he's a, a fearless commentator in a game that doesn't have many of them. Mm, he's not just incendiary for the sake of it, I think. Um, the, I don't think anyway, so. I think, I, you know, I, I would only say I think, you know, when you go into print, all your words are measured more mm. carefully. It's not like saying something on television, which mm. – while sometimes it can be quoted back to you, a lot of times it just goes into the ether, and, and people remember the idea but don't remember the exact words. When you use a device like he did with the fourth-grade teacher catching him cheating and all that, that was very intentional and, and for effect. And when it's written, it just has more impact in people's mind. And, and so that was scrutinized. And through that scrutiny, it was sort of decided, the collective decided that he's calling him a cheater, which is a big charge in golf. And I think that's where... Randall really was, you know, bit off quite a bit there. Do we think that the mistake, Tommy, was using the analogy of the maths exam? When I mean, does anyone disagree that Tiger Woods wasn't cavalier with the rules this year? I mean, in my mind, no. he was he was unquestionably cavalier with the rules, which is not to say he cheated, but wow, the drop at the TPC and the the plug ball on the sand in Dubai and the Masters deal and the the ball oscillating slash moving in Chicago. I mean, they were. Oh. Well, you know, Mike, I know that's a very shared opinion, and I'm not trying to waffle on this. I think Cavalier implies, you know, sort of being casual and not caring. And, I, you know, he's never had that reputation. He's, he's, the, the, for as far as I know, the players have all felt that he's, you know, a, an ethical and, and, uh, and trustworthy playing partner. Uh, I think some of it was just kind of a, a quirk of fate that all these things happened at once. The one in Dubai, I mean, you could go over them one by one, which might be time-consuming, but I, I think... You know, that's how you actually determine if there's a pattern here. And one at Dubai, he asked his playing partner, it was sort of this odd thing where it was in sand, but in a, in a, uh, a non-hazard, I guess. And so, or it wasn't a hazard, didn't think it was. He thought it was an embedded ball, sort of timer. He took a drop. He was out of it at that time, so maybe there was a bit of a Cavalier thing. Yeah. I mean, the one at the Masters, nothing would have happened probably if he hadn't said, I wanted to mm -hmm. drop two yards back so the same thing wouldn't happen. Uh I mean, it's very complicated to go into what happened, but I think he was in shock once the ball hit the flagstick and went in the water. And and actually, his caddy, Joe LaCava, should have been on top of it yeah. you know, to keep him. And so that didn't happen. Uh, the TPC one is the one that's stuck in a lot of players' cry. Uh, at the same time, you know, he did the right thing he, in terms of the rules. He asked Casey Wittenberg. Casey Wittenberg said, that's fine, drop it there. And so Tiger was covered. Uh, the BMW one, I, I give him the benefit of the doubt of not seeing it happen when it happened. But once he saw the film, if he indeed saw the film, which is one of the more intriguing things that's come out, is that Robert Lucetich from Australia wrote that uh, he had a source that said Tiger never even actually looked at the replay, which answers a lot if it's true. But in any event, let's assume he did look at it and did say, you know, I don't want to, uh, uh, I, I don't see it. It didn't move to me still. That just seemed like, uh, what do you guys call it, bloody-mindedness, you know? He, yeah. He, yeah. You know, he just looked like he was being a jerk, frankly. And, and that didn't sit well with the players. So I don't know if Cavalier is the right word. I think, you know, Brandle was measuring his words, but I still think it gets into a, you know, it's in, the devil's in the details here. And I think it gets into a, a, a very sensitive area when you call a player a cheater, as you know, Mike, better than any of us here. Yeah. Yeah. It stays with you forever. And yeah. uh, I don't blame Tiger for fighting back, actually. No. Clates, the players know, don't they, on tour? Players know who you watch carefully. Um, it's known, well, I, I, I've certainly never heard that that's the case 
with Woods. I mean, it's never been the case, but on two of the players themselves, don't they? They all know who you who you well, watch always, carefully. Yeah, there have always been some guys who've had, you know, poor reputations. And I mean, the thing with Simon Dyson this week, I, mean, I, mean, I haven't played in Europe for a long time, but I assume he never had a reputation. But that was that was a staggering bit of film that we saw <laughs> from hmm. wherever it was. I'm not sure whether, whether they were playing China or something. You lose track of whether you're a to it goes these days. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, that was a bizarre thing that he did I mean now they're talking about suspending him but I mean how can you suspend him if you didn't suspend Colin Montgomery oh boy let's, <laughs> let's oh. no there's a lot out there Rod as you know yeah. and, and, and Jeff knows it. Jeff played at a high level in college golf everybody knows their competitors mm. and their reputations mm. and sometimes it's telling when someone gets accused whether or, or something happens that's sort of controversial whether the players defend him or not when they don't defend him it mm. means that well I don't know if they're right on this one but this guy had it coming and I saw that happen a few times. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, when Greg Norman uh, uh, sort of made a scene yeah. about Mark McCumber, Mark didn't get much defense, even though Greg actually didn't follow the procedure correctly to, in the way he, he, uh, he brought attention to what happened. He called, it a, he called it a hole later or something. But the players sort of felt like Mark McCumber's kind of been a little fast and loose, and, and, they, and they, didn't, uh, they didn't defend him. So, yeah, it, it's something, you know, VJ to this day carries that burden. Uh, unfairly, I think, probably enough time's gone by, and that was a very different time and a very different uh, situation for him, but it just doesn't go away in golf. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think, I, you know, I wrote a column of three weeks ago about Tiger's drop uh, at BMW, uh, and or at least his, the, what happened at BMW, and, Man, I sweated that column. I really did. I mean, I had three or four people look at it who I trusted. Am I being too hard on them? Is this go over the line? Is this close? And, you know, the, the, fortunately, the verdict was it was fair, and so far it's cut clean, but I sweated that column. Mm. Mm. That's right. Chambly took the pressure off you, Jaime, so nobody's going to read yours now. This <laughs> yeah. is the one to read. It does speak to the seriousness of it, though, doesn't it, a, a, as an accusation. And, and Chambly didn't say directly Tiger's a cheater, but, boy, he really went as close as you can without saying so. The fact that we all still talk about Vijay Singh, don't we? And what's that, Clates? That's nearly 30 years ago, that incident. Was, I think it was 1985. 85. I, know I, I know I played the tournament. It was in Jakarta, but... Yeah, look, it's 30 years ago. Mm. And, you know, and still to this day uh, is brought up. He has never been. So it really is a serious thing to do in, in golf, isn't it, Jaime? Let's move on from that. A lot of this is, is obviously wrapped up, Jaime, in Tiger's personality. And we touched on it there at the opening. You used to sit down with Tiger once a year back in the day and do a state of state of Tiger's game, I guess it was, for golf dieters. You alluded to the fact that you don't feel like you really got to know Tiger the personal, but you you did know him in his teenagers. I get the sense Ron Syrak wrote a really interesting column a week or two ago on this similar sort of topic about access to Tiger, and he he got to know Tiger when he was a kid. He did something at some point that offended Woods. He went from Ronnie to uh, just a, a casual nod in the odd sort of way. Not hard to offend Tiger. What's your take on Tiger the person from what you've known, the little that you've known, I guess? Well, I've got to say, you know, Tiger's always treated me very well, uh, I, but I just I know since the book. You know, I don't like talking about it a lot and bringing attention to, you know, my particular dynamic. But, you know, since the big miss, I'm sure, you know, uh, I'm not someone that he would, that he would, uh, you know, welcome in his circle. Uh, not just his circle, but I mean, just in general. He, he would treat me differently than he used to. But I, I've got to say, from the time I met him, which was 1992, on, uh, giving him, you know, uh, the benefit of the doubt in terms of, what competition can do to a person as far as putting him in a bad mood or making him inaccessible or whatever, 
when the time came to talk to me or I asked a question, I got answers and it, and it was respectful and they weren't always the most insightful answers, but you know, professionally it was a good relationship and, and I actually have Tiger to thank for a lot of, you know, really privileged moments, just talking to the greatest player, certainly of his time and maybe ever. So, you know, as a person, you know, it, when you meet someone when they're 14, you, you, you were dealing with a person. You're not dealing with an image. You're not mm-hmm. dealing with a corporation. You're not dealing with, you know, uh, a whole infrastructure of, of handlers and all that stuff. You're just dealing with that person and, and, and Earl Woods. And, and I found Tiger a wonderful kid. I mean, you know, he loved golf. He was narrow in his interests, but he was a bright kid, and he was, uh, was fun-loving. I mean, as far as when I saw him on the golf course, he loved playing. And uh, he didn't seem haunted or burdened by, you know, being Tiger Woods and expectation. I mean, he was a little distrustful of, of media in general because I think that it had already been uh, an intrusion in his life. But in general, you know, I found him to be someone who was really looking for the future, hopefully and happily and, and with great optimism. And, you know, things change because of you know, the realities of professional life. And, and when he got into his 20s, especially Tiger Mania, which would have been around 97, after he won the Masters, even before, actually, um, that's when he started to get more guarded. And, you know, I've always given him the benefit of doubt in that regard. I mean, I, I have no idea how I would react or how a normal human being would react, but I think probably very similarly as far as just closing up. And, and so he closed up, and, and not totally. I mean, he, he always, I think... Uh, fulfilled his obligations in the in the media tent or but with the i'm not saying the bare minimum but certainly nothing extra because i don't think he thought there was anything in it for him to be extra you know he's going to do it he's going to do the obligation but there's no sense in in losing more privacy or losing more uh, of what he wants to hold close to himself Hmm. and i I don't mean to go on forever here but basically uh in the into the 2000s you know he became more private And, and at the same time more savvy about how to deal with the press. So, you know, when I sat down with him in a very privileged way with those Golf Digest articles, even though he he was on staff with Golf Digest and there was sort of this deal, you know, he gives us time. He was doing it as uh, not just, you know, because I asked him, but because he felt he had an obligation. Those were still great moments. Uh, You know, he was still talking about golf, something he knows as well as any person probably. And while he may not have told me everything he thought, he told me a lot. And so, you know, I take pride in those stories, even though they may have a taint to some people of being kind of a house job because Golf Digest, you know, basically had a contract with Tiger. Um, I'm proud of them, and, and I miss, you know, I miss those times uh, just because, just like I enjoyed so much talking to Jack on the phone. Those are my favorite times as a, as a golf journalist, just talking to the, mm. the, you know, the players that you admire so much and, and uh, are interested in uh, and asking them everything you want to ask them and getting answers. That's, that's my favorite time. The hardest time is writing it, but that's right. uh, the talking is the fun is really the fun part and the satisfying part. That's so work, Tiger gave me a lot of those moments. Uh, Jaime, within all of that, and Jeff Ogilvy said a very similar thing on this show a couple of episodes ago, that it's a shame Tiger isn't more open, particularly about golf, because he is an extraordinarily intelligent and knowledgeable person. Is that the sense that you get as well, that we kind of miss out because he's so guarded? Sure. I mean, Jeff is so astute, and I'll bet they've had some good conversations, mm. although, you know, Tiger holds back with other competitors just because he doesn't want to give away too much of himself uh, to them either. To, I guess he's always felt like, you know, the better they know me, the more they might have a chance to beat me. Uh, but sure, it's a loss, and I think that's one reason 
Nicholas, who was never as revered, I shouldn't say revered, it's the wrong word, but never quite as um, loved as, as, as Arnold Palmer, actually with the golf writers is revered because he's such a great interview and he's so giving. Now, and, it, and that was true when he was still playing. I mean, I didn't see Jack in his prime uh, as a journalist. I mean, I didn't pick him up until about 83, and that was already you know past his prime. And, of course, the 86 Masters was a, a great moment, but it was the end, basically, of his, of his great play. Uh, and all that time, though, uh, he's been the best interview, uh, the most giving. First of all, he's the most knowledgeable. He has the most credibility, but he also enjoyed the discourse and enjoyed the, uh, the, the rapport with the writers. And, and as he started to fall out of the limelight, even though I think he enjoyed a lot of that and having his life back, I think he missed a little bit of the attention. And whenever he got in the press room, and Jeff Shackelford can uh, confirm this, I mean, he's the best. Uh, and I mean, Dave Anderson, who, you know, has been a journalist since 1949 and won the Pulitzer Prize, covered everybody. I mean, every sport. Best interview in, in his whole career ever consistently has been Jack Nicholas. So in, 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 in comparison, Tiger doesn't do that for us. He does a little, and it's fascinating because the interest is so high, but you're right. I mean, wistfully, we, we know it could be so much more and maybe it will be someday, but, uh, I don't think in the near future, that's for sure. Uh, Jaime, uh, and I do think it will be someday. I do. I mean, he when you ask him a golf question, he's he 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 gives you a pretty good answer. Not maybe as long as you'd like, but he gives you good stuff. But but to the story, um, you have a quote from Ray Floyd that's that's uh, who who pins a lot on Tiger losing his aura as as one of the reasons that that maybe he's not the player he was. Uh, I'm curious how much um, you you. Um, uh, Subscribe to that theory versus other elements of his game, like the loss in distance or less consistency with putting. Um, just how, how much that aura really is a, a part of kind of where he's at at this point. It's interesting you'd ask, you'd ask that, Jeff, because I mean I've never been a big subscriber to that the aura. I always felt like you know you you intimidate people with your scores and you intimidate your people people with your style of play. Uh, I mean people knew Tiger wasn't going to mis- make a mistake on the course or or, or back up. And that's intimidating just because you know you can't make a mistake. But Ray, uh, Ray Floyd talks more about personality, the cult of, you know, uh, the power of, uh, of, of, of a, a type A alpha dog personality uh, uh, and, and the way that projects. And, and Ray Floyd was known as an intimidator, although he used to downplay yeah. it. But, you know, there was a certain assurity about him when he walked that, that just looked like, you know, I'm better than you and I'm going to beat you. And... I don't care how well you play. I will find a way. And, and players started to believe that, I think, about Raymond at his best. And Tiger had it, you know, much more than Raymond in terms of results. So I, I think that, you know, when Ray Floyd says it, it's got to be listened to. I, I think one thing he also said that was interesting, that, that Tiger now has a pattern of failure uh, in performance, which he's never had, a pattern. I mean, he's had failures. But now he's got a pattern of it. And that's hard to deal with. So, you know, Gary Player, he said, you know, it's important for a, for a player to feel admired by the, mm. by the people who are watching, but also by his fellow players. And it, for a while there, Tiger may not have been admired. And, and that's a blow. But uh, I'm looking at the quote now. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's an intangible, but it seems to matter uh, to the best players. I mean, they, you know, Weisskopf said that, you know, he, Nicholas knows, you know, he knows that whole 
construction yeah. and the whole, you know, that, that it, it's been said enough times that it must be true. And so yeah. if Ray Floyd says it, I think, I think Tiger probably has lost some of that and it's important. I mean, he may have lost it and it, some people say, well, sure he lost it, but so what? He can get it back by playing better. But it sounds like it's sort of permanently lost because what he had was so, so, you know, unattainable, I shouldn't say unattainable, but so much higher than anyone else had attained. I mean, Tiger's, Tiger's prime was just so incredibly dominant. I mean, Jack was never that dominant. No one was ever as dominant as he was when he was at his best. And, and I think Raymond was alluding to that. Hmm. Do you think, yeah. do you think, Jaime, that, you know, the great debate between the Nicholas Woods thing is that Nicholas played against better players, more intimidating players, players who gave him more of a run from, you know, Palmer to player to Casper, Watson. Um, do, do you think Tigers played against tougher players? And uh, that was one question. And then the second part of that question is, you know, given the poor, for, poorish form of McElroy this year and Mickelson and Elsa are over 40, you know, th- does that further add to the argument that Tigers kind of the players he's played against haven't quite measured up to the ones Jack played against? I think there is some of that argument, Michael. I mean, I think you're, you're in a better position to judge than I am and having played against players who know how to win. Uh, that, that, and that kind of goes back to Floyd's point also. Uh, and, I, and I really think um, it was really important in, in Jack's day, the players that you know, came before him and that he played against and beat. I mean, he beat a succession of great players, starting with Palmer and then, you know, on to Trevino and, 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 and Miller and all these guys, these challengers. But all of them, except for Miller, to some extent, although he became one, were really hardened winners and knew how to handle it at the end of tournaments. And, I mean, how many of those guys do we really have today? And I think part of it's just, you know, this monster the tour's created where you don't have to win to have an incredibly good career, an incredibly good lifestyle. And, I, you know, I don't mean everybody's soft, but uh, I just think the urgency isn't there. And, and so the guys don't get as hardened and tough under the, under the, uh, the gun on Sunday because they're not there as often, and it doesn't mean as much when they are there. Uh, I mean, it's just an opinion, but it just seems like you didn't see guys cough it up uh, very much. I mean, everybody chokes, and even Nicholas admits to choking. So choking is part of the game on Sunday, but it does, it just seemed like, you know, guys that were that Jack were going up against didn't give it away. And and to your point about Rory, uh, you know, not that Rory is a choker. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that he's a bit soft though, and he hasn't really been there. And suddenly the expectations and the limelight and the and the uh, you know the responsibility of being a winner. It's a heavy burden. It's hard. It's hard to sustain it. And so, in Tiger's era, no one really has been able to. Phil, obviously, he's got 42 wins. He's been a winner for a long time. But I, I think it's always telling. Every time Phil had a chance to be number one, and he had several chances the last four years, he never got there. He never beat Tiger. He, you know, it, it, whereas Trevino grabbed it when he had a chance against Nicholas, and Watson grabbed it when he had a chance against mm. Nicholas. There's a difference. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what, but. Uh, it does seem like I'm sure there's more guys that can win now, and Tiger's got that to deal with. If he doesn't play well, he's not going to win probably. And maybe Jack won some more with his C game than, than Tiger might have. Uh, but at in a close race at the top of a, the leaderboard on a Sunday, uh, I think Jack might have had more formidable opponents than Tiger ten, tends to have. Clades, what role do you reckon money's played in that? You're a player, and you've watched the money explode probably a little too late for your career in that sense, but what role does money play in that and players 
attitudes. When we spoke to Tony Johnson on the show, he was fascinating about that, that it was just about winning. You know, money was not even thought about. Now the money is big. Maybe you don't need yeah. to win. Do you need to – Do you, who wants to – honestly, who wants to be Tiger Woods or Rory McIlroy and put up with everything that goes with it? I'm not sure there's that many want to, are there? Oh, no, I don't agree with that. But 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 I think that when you finish second and you walk off with six or $700,000, it's still a pretty nice week. You can see why there's not the – you know, it's an awful lot. You know, it's a lot more than back in the seventies when it was thirty thousand to win and fifteen thousand for second. There's a even accounting for inflation. There's a big difference between fifteen thousand and seven hundred thousand for second. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and Tommy's right. Tiger was such an invincible force for for so long, so hard to beat. And you know, the, the great fascination of sports. And of course, the, the unanswerable question is what would have happened if Tiger and Jack had gone up against each other at their best. Jack answered it. He said he would have kicked Woods' butt. Didn't he yeah. say that very early on, Honey? Yeah. He said, I would have kicked well, his butt. Well, yeah, but I think he, that's tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But isn't that uh, telling, though, that that, that would have been his attitude? Well, I'm sure he would have had that attitude. Yeah, and, I'm sure, and I'm sure Tiger would have felt the same. Mm. Uh, but the one time that really happened was, sorry, uh, the one time that really happened was 1960, almost, when, when you had Nicholas almost being great, Palmer great, and Hogan still being great. That that one incredible open at Cherry Hills was the one time you could almost see the answer to here's what would happen if the greatest players played against each other. That's why that to me is the greatest open still, which is way off the topic, but that was an no, extraordinary no, open. Point. Yeah, yeah that, that was the you incredible. Know, Tiger's never had that. Tiger's never really no. never been that, that, that no. gathering no. at the no. top for him. Yeah. 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 It's funny, isn't it, Tommy? It's always been the bit players who've made the, the incredible finishes in Woods' great victories, isn't it? I mean, Bob May at the, the PGA in 2000. Players you wouldn't necessarily expect to be the ones that seem to have stepped up. We haven't had the great Tiger head-to-head in a major, have we? Which I think is the point that Clates has made. You really haven't had it with any of the other form players of the day. No, I think part of it was that when Tiger was really on, it didn't matter how no. great the second-best guy was. Yeah, he, was right. not a yeah. About 15 shots, I think, is... Yeah, you know, and then you know maybe you know Bob May was just having a miracle week, mm. and and uh, Y.E. Yang had a miracle week. Mm. At least yeah. history would seem to say that. And, uh, and Tiger, yeah. you know, Tiger felt the pressure against Y.E. Yang, not not because it was Y.E. Yang, but I think the accumulation, you know, it was inevitable he was going to lose a major finally, and he finally didn't make the big putt. He finally didn't hit the big shot. Uh, it finally happened. Now, did, did that leave some kind of uh, uh, permanent sort of inability? I, I can't believe that, but. Uh, I think the subsequent events of 2009 were much more damaging. Mm. Uh, I don't think he lost anything in 2009. That was just, you know, to go 14-0 and, and, and keep going and go 18-0 and 21-0, and it doesn't make sense that um, anyone could do that. 14-0 uh, was incredible enough as it was. I'm talking about holding the third-round lead in yeah. a major. Clates, I think you wanted to ask Jaime about Seve. To get off Tiger for a minute, we're still talking about great oh. personalities, great players. Or Shaq, sorry. Yeah. Well, before we get yeah. Uh, before we get to Seve, I, we, we we don't want to worry everybody out on Tiger, but I I do have to. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm just curious about one thing. You you touched on it in the the story, Jaime. Um, the one thing you know you, you see with Mickelson is that he's losing distance, but he still has the ability to 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 hit a huge drive when he needs to. Uh, do you feel like that's part of Tiger's um, uh, struggle at the moment, either or with the aura or just overall kind of his own confidence? Is that he seems to have lost that ability to um, just put one out there that makes everybody kind of uh, uh, you know just really in awe of him, and 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 also just gives him a strategic advantage in, in being able to overpower a course at times. Uh, I think that's the most important point of all, Jeff. I mean, I, the aura and all that's important and. His mental state's important, but it's not 
you know, this thing is tangible. I mean, th- those things are, you know, intangible. And, and, you know, as you guys play at a high level, you know that hitting the driver well is so important. It just sets it sets you up. It makes you, it, it makes the golf course so much easier when you're in the fairway and long. Well, Tiger used to be, you know, quite straight. I mean, relatively speaking, I'm not talking about just 2000. I mean, I, he hit the ball solid and he didn't spray it. I mean, he might miss the fairway, but he didn't miss it by miles. Uh, and so he always had that length advantage and, and he just miniaturized these golf courses. And, you know, the great change that happened with equipment uh, with the Pro V1 and right around that era with the Bridgestone ball and everything, everybody getting 10 yards, they caught him a little bit. He always played a spinnier ball because he wanted to have that control around the green. And then he never really took to the large-headed, you know, titanium drivers. He, he never really drove the ball that well with them. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he just, you know, always wanted to be the longest because he'd always been the longest. And once he didn't, I don't think he adapted particularly well. And somehow his driver swing just kind of lost its rhythm. I mean, that's kind of what Butch Harmon seems to think is that Tiger, both Tiger and Phil got too interested in distance. And maybe that's a big deal when you're out there playing against these guys uh, who are coming up. You want to still be as long as they are just to show that, you know, you're the best athlete. Yeah. But, you know, Tiger's had to kind of refine his game, and I, I think he's the best iron player. I think most people would, would, would agree. Um, but he can't, with confidence, you know, go up to a, a tough, long par five or a par four now and, and just pipe a driver and hit a, a nine iron. And he's, he's hitting three wood, and he's back there with a six iron and a five iron. And, I just think it's hard to make the same kind of scores and have the same kind of dominance and win tournaments by 10 and 12 shots if you're playing that way. Yeah. So, you know, these, Mac, these, these tournaments he's in now are tight because, you know, he's calculated, okay, I can, I can avoid the mistakes with this, but he's not going to make the great birdie runs and the, and the great, you know, kind of dominant uh, uh, demonstrations of, of skill that demoralize everybody without that driver. And he's still pretty long. He's just not as long. I, I don't think it's a statistical thing where he's lost 15 yards and, and it's and it and it's kept him back. I think it's more that he's afraid hit driver and he's got hit three with so often. Mm. Uh, that's my opinion. I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Quite. No, I, I yeah, I think you're right. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, the driver yips are the most. No one talks about the driver yips, but you know, Finchie had them and Scott Verplank for a bit, and you know they destroy guys' careers quicker than anything. So, so you know, there's one thing to stay on the range and smash drivers, but you get in the golf course and you're just not quite so sure with it. When, when it's going that far, you know, it's so tough. Well, that's to the thing, Mike. Like you say, I mean, you, the farther you hit it, the straighter you have to be to be able to play the golf courses these yeah. days. I mean, they're, they're bringing I, yeah. in, they're bringing in the target areas. You know, and this guy Mark Brody, who uh, does sort yeah. of uh, his own, as you know, uh, independent sort of shot yeah. analysis, maybe even a little more sophisticated. He's gone as far as with the strokes game, tee to green, and he says that that the tee to green and driving the ball in particular is the most important part of the game, not the putter. And yeah. so, to your point about the driver yips, that's when guys go south the fastest. I mean, what there yeah. was, you know, Stenson when he was when he went off the planet, it was the driver. Same thing with Westwood, yeah. and uh, you know, Duvall. All you know, there's a whole bunch of them. The driver yips. Hank Haney is obsessed with the driver. I say obsessed. I mean, but he had him, and he yeah. really studied it, and. You know, he went. He ventured as far as to say that Tiger had indication of the driver yips, and I mean, it's a very hard thing once you have them to even, uh, you know, address them because I think they're mysterious. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, Tiger knows how to swing the club, but can he do it when it matters like he used to? That's that's a mental thing. 
can't go yeah. to a claw with the driver, can you, Clates? <laughs> no, well, well <laughs> which is Wayne Grady's argument about the long putter. He hates the long putter, and the other guys were arguing about Bane, the long putter. He said, well, guys who get the yips with the driver, what do they do? Mm. Why should the guys <laughs> with the putter yips get away with it? What about the guys with the chipping yips and the driver yips? Mm. Well, what about that point about the big driver that Jaime made there, Clates? I'm, I'm fascinated by that, that Tiger never really took to the, the big-headed well, driver. It's a very different club, isn't it, to the, well, the wooden and the smaller metal well, ones? Well, I, I hate, you know, for the average amateur, that ball goes so much further offline. I wonder if Tiger would be fine with a wooden driver mm. and a steel shaft. You know, if they were still playing with proper golf clubs like Nicholas was, whether Tiger would be fine with a McGregor driver and a bladder ball and a steel shaft, I bet he'd be driving at 280 yards right down the middle of the fairway. Mm. He, of course, did He did go back to his old driver what, 10 years ago, not long after the switch to Nike, didn't he, if I recall, Jaime? There was a bit of controversy about it. He went back to his old Titleist. And... Yeah, he stayed with that Titleist. It was a 250cc and, you know, a two, and, and that shaft, was, uh, I think. Yeah, I think yeah. he, you know, the best, I, he, won the, he won a little Cobra at the Masters, but I think in 2000 he had that yeah. uh, 250cc uh, Titleist, mm. and that was, that's probably the best he ever drove the ball. Mm. Uh, but once it got bigger, he, uh, I don't know. Uh, first of all, that, and Mike, you can speak to this, but it, it seems like it promotes a, a cut. Uh, which wasn't his natural ball flight. He liked to draw the ball, so he always tried to draw the ball, even with a big driver. And he, he would hit a lot of pushes and a lot of and a lot of flares. The ball wouldn't come yeah. back. And well, so then, got, he started, yeah. then he changed to a, a left to right flight, and you know I think it got him out of his natural pattern, and suddenly he wasn't as straight anymore. Well, it got bigger and longer and lighter. That was the you know the, the combination of the, the 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 length, the lightness of the shaft, and the massive head. And you now, Jaime, let's get away from Tiger. Um, you visited with, I've got this column here, you're a beautiful column, I thought. When you visited with Seve the last time, you you went back to get your briefcase and found him on the couch. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that or is that too no, private? No, sure. I mean, no, it was a great privilege. It was a great yeah. honor. I mean, uh, you know, and players of your era especially, I was just so amazed at how much reverence was Seve was held in as a, you know, as a person, but certainly in, it, for, in terms of his skills. I mean, I think it's it's actually grown, and not through legend, but actually through uh, a, a kind of appreciation for just how good he was at the the really difficult things in golf. And the great irony is that he was not that good at the simplest things, for at least for a good player, which is the driver. Again, this is driver he to uh, afflicted Seve. Yeah. But uh, you know, to, so so to go go back and see him was wonderful because. Uh, he led me, for one. I mean, I was just, uh, you know, it was a very difficult time. I think in retrospect, he probably knew he was dying. Give us some background, Jaime. Uh, sorry, that, I'm not that, familiar that with not the... That was not what he was saying. I'm sorry. sorry I'm Rod. not familiar with the column that Clates is talking about. Just give us some background to... Oh, sure. So. Well, uh, you know, Seve, of course, had his his, his, his horrible brain tumor and, and operation. And then he was, gonna go, he was going to play uh, in the 2010 British Open at St. Andrews. And this was going to be a great moment. It was going to be like Ali lighting the flame yeah. at the uh, 96 Olympics, you know. Uh, and, and it was going to be a, a wonderful moment where all the champions play on the Wednesday and Seve was going to be first among the champions and everyone was going to get a chance to really show their appreciation. And, and it was going to be a wonderful thing for Seve. And he was even practicing. I mean, he had a little... I went to his house in Pedrena and he had a, uh, he had a little course around his house that he had built, little, you know... 80-yard shots, very difficult. I mean, the greens were about four yards wide and uh, water all over the place. And, he, you know, he said he had the course record. I think it was only one under. It was really hard. But anyway, he was, he was hitting balls. And he said I had lost, obviously lost some distance, but he was looking forward to everything. Um, and so that was the premise 
on which I went there, and, and he allowed me to come because I think he was hopeful about at least the St. Andrews things happening. Um, and, he, you know, he let me in the house, and, and, and we visited on it in his room, and he showed me around a beautiful home. You know, it had a, a beautiful swimming pool, an uh, indoor swimming pool that had a bunch of nautical uh, motifs that was actually a tribute to his father, who had been a fisherman. And he talked a lot about his father. I mean, he was getting very nostalgic about his family. And, and the hard thing was, because of his brain tumor and the way that the operation went, it affected, and I don't know which lobe it is, I should know this, but uh, one of the frontal lobes. And it's not uncommon for people who have that operation to lose control total control of their emotions. So he became very emotional several times in the interview, um, you know, crying. And, and, and he would excuse himself, I'm sorry, this happens now. And it was really, it was touching, you know, it was, it was hard to, to continue. But, but he, 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 was, he was brave about it and he kept talking. And, you know, it just made the whole thing seem so wistful and sad. Uh, so anyway, we, you know, it was a beautiful day. And at the same time, even though it was sad, and I probably, I, I, I thought for sure I would see him in St. Andrews again. And I was... That's how I built the story. Uh, you know, he has the, um, his, uh, his logo is of him celebrating the putt at, on at 72nd at St. Andrews. He calls it the moment, you know. So in, in the story, I use that as sort of, it's even on his doorknob, on his, on his front door was a, a little carved Chevy, and you knock on it with, you know. Uh, and, and, and it was all over the house, actually, or motifs called El Momento. Anyway, uh, that, that moment was, uh, we never saw it. Yeah, I mean, we, we, so, the, so the, you know, the great moment, the next great moment was going to be at St. Andrews, and it just didn't happen. His doctors told him it would be dangerous to fly, and to get that emotional was dangerous, and they, they decided that he shouldn't go. And I've talked to friends of his since then, and his family members even, who say they really regret that even though it was going to be dangerous, they didn't let him do it because it would have been a great moment. But what happened at the end there, Mike, it, it, you know, it was just a little moment, but it, it was... I had left my, I, in, in the rush of leaving and being excited and, and, and being, you know, sort of uh, losing, losing my poise a little probably, I, I left my briefcase in, in, in his living room. So I went to leave and I, I walked out of the house and I realized, geez, I left my briefcase. And it, so I knocked back and the, the housekeeper let me in and I, I had to go back in the room. And he was laying down and he looked completely exhausted. I mean, he had kept his energy up for, for me and, and the photographer for those two hours we were there. And his his nephew, Yvonne, uh, had told us, boy, he doesn't, he doesn't have that much energy usually. That was really, he really tried. So I came back in the room and he was laying down with his hand, his hand over his face and he was just, I could tell he was exhausted. And then I surprised him by walking in uh, because the housekeeper just opened the door for me. And I said, Sevy, I'm really sorry I had this. And, you know, he, he, he was a little annoyed, but then he said, he goes, hey, wonderful to see you. You know, I look forward to seeing you again, my friend. And, and it was, you know, and I said goodbye, Sevy, and that was it. And that was obviously the last time I saw him, and I don't think he made maybe one other public appearance after that. Mm. So, you know, we all miss him. I mean, uh, he, he was just an artist. We all, you know, all of us, all four of us now, we love the game for, for, for the artistry and the skill and all the guts it takes to play it well. And then he exemplified that, uh, I think, more than any other player. Uh, more than Tiger, more than Jack, for the players. I mean, mm. he's everybody's favorite player. You know, Ben Crenshaw said, you know, he looked like a player. That's the guy you want to look like. That's the guy you want to swing like. That's the guy you want to carry yourself like, you know, Seve. And so I think that's his great legacy. More than the championships and more than, uh, you know, the shots, it was it was the way he looked. He just looked like the platonic ideal of a golfer, and, and I think he's remembered that way. How well had you known him, Jaime? Had you had a history, obviously, then with Seve? On the well, not, you know, not the longest time. I, I think I met him at the... Uh, 
Jeff was probably there. I think it was the 85 uh, L.A. Open. might have been the 86 L.A. Open. Uh, oh, when I mean, he got I, the uh, sponsor exemption. Yeah, because he, big, had, he was having deal. a fight with, uh, with Beeman. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's when I saw him first and spoke to him. And, I, and all the players at that time mm. were in, on Seve's side. Even though Seve, he, he just kind of blatantly broke the rule, broke the agreement that he had with Beeman. I mean, Beeman's the ogre in the story, but Seve just said, I don't want to play anymore. And, and uh, you know, he said, well, then you're, you don't have a card anymore. And so then it was like, geez, we don't get to see Seve. And the players were upset. Uh, but anyway, uh, after that, you know, I, I visited him once in Pedreña in, in 89 where I actually just kind of cold called him. It was crazy. I, I went there thinking, you know, if he says no, I'll still talk to everyone around him. I just flew to Spain. I mean, that's when <laughs> the magazines had money. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I just showed up at Pedreña and, and uh, kind of smoked him out. I mean, waited around uh, the pro shop. And, and then I, uh, I, he came out. And, the pro, and his house was right by the pro shop. And he came out in his pajama top and a sandwich. He was going to hit some shots. It was like 10 in the morning. And he saw me, he goes, what are you doing here? You know, he was, he was mad. But then, you know, he, he said, well, you've come all this way. And, and I ended, ended up spending a couple hours with him. And he drove me back to the, to the bridge uh, in Pedrania where you cross, not the bridge, but the ferry where you cross to go back to the mainland. So he, it was wonderful. Uh, he, was, he had a great heart. I mean, he was a tempestuous guy. He was a genius. And he's, you know, I'm sure in many ways a difficult man. But uh, his heart was what, people connected to and, and they and they gave the benefit of the doubt on the other stuff because all these geniuses are a little crazy mm. david cannon says exactly the same thing he had quite a long relationship the photographer david cannon long relationship with sevi i remember talking to him uh, not long after sevi had done maybe two or three days and he was crying openly on the phone uh, about yeah. sevi. and he said that so he said he could be extremely difficult what he wanted to be but he was such a genius and had such an amazing heart as a person, Clay, you would have bumped into him, I guess, on the tour. Sevi, I don't think you've ever said you were his friend, but you've talked about just what a presence he was, haven't you? I, I played with him. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I think everyone loves Sevi. They adored him, really. I mean, loves to. Well, it's the same word. You, you, uh, the players adored him. Nick Price, all those guys who grew up. Tony Johnson. You know, it was just he. He made everyone's life better because he was. He was there. He, you know, when I look back at my time playing in Europe, I think I played in the best time in Europe because of one man, really. You know, just to watch the guy, you know, as Crenshaw was said, just to watch the guy play golf, just to watch the way he put his shoes on. I mean, my God, the guy, it was in, you know, you don't see anyone like that in the game anymore. Perhaps not even before that. Perhaps he was the only guy ever. I mean, Palmer, maybe. I don't know. I didn't see Palmer when he was at his best. But, you know, you see a guy who was that great, who was, and everyone was in awe. You know, Feldo, those guys, they all knew he was the best player, really. Although Sevy did say that, Someone asked Seve once if you know if you guys all played your best, who would win? He said, "Well, Sandy Lowell would win, of course." But you know, Seve just had the whole thing, and he was adored by the players, certainly in Europe, and and of course by the fans and by the by the by the sponsors and by everybody. So, so Seve's burden was perhaps that that you know he understood that the whole thing was riding on his shoulders. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, and what a position. I, mean, I guess Tigers had a bit of that, and Rory's maybe felt a bit of that, as you alluded to earlier. Jaime, you did mention something. I did want to chat about this. It's moving sort of away from the players, but sort of golf more generally. It's a far more commercial world we live in now, and a far different world. You, of course, spent your life in magazines, as have I. Uh, that's been my background as well. And boy, have things changed. You mentioned it there with a bit of a, a chuckle, you know, back in the days when magazines had money. 
it really is a different world, the golf, well, media generally, but the golf media now, isn't it? Of course, you've got an online presence, you've got a print presence. It's all very quite confusing. What's your take on where we are? Where do you think we're going to end up? It's a, you know, it's a, this internet has done an amazing thing to media, hasn't it? And those of us who work in it. Well, we're in a, we're in a, a huge transitional period, and I don't think people know the other end yet. Uh, I think, you know, I think everybody who's still in it, it very much appreciates if they were lucky enough to go through the, you know, the, the fat years, so to speak, uh, they appreciate it more. Maybe we took it for granted then, and, and we feel lucky to still be in it and, and still have, uh, you know, good jobs. Uh, there aren't as many as there used to be, and every good job now is, entails more work than it used to. But, you know, I don't think you hear people complaining now. You, you hear, I, I heard more complaining when everything was going so great because it looked like <laughs> we all felt entitled, I think. Yeah. I say we all, but, I mean, collectively there was a sense of, well, you know, this is, hey, this is important. We're golf riders. <laughs> well, in the grand scheme, I mean, you know, what is golf? Golf is a niche sport, and, um, you know, golf riders are, uh, you know, not, not the most important, even sports riders. Uh, so it, it was, it was wonderful. And, uh, you know, I think it'll probably be like that again once this thing all gets figured out. Uh, but I mean, Jeff's been a pioneer in some ways, you know, with, with his website. Uh, that's probably the way a young golf writer, if you were 25 now, what would you do? Uh, it'd probably be very hard to get on a golf magazine. Uh, and it might be hard to get on the golf channel, but if you wrote a blog and an intelligent one, uh, you'd get noticed and you'd build a name and Jeff's done that. Uh, and, you know, I think he's the model, actually, now for a golf writer. You know, Bernard Darwin was a model once, and Dan Jenkins was a model once. Um, you know, now Doug Ferguson, who covers the uh, golf for the AP, he's by far the most read golf writer in the history of, of, of civilization mm. because so, yeah. few, so few newspapers have their own golf writer. Uh, and Doug's really good. He's incredibly fast and incredibly accurate and just an amazing I think he's an amazing person. It's mentioned prolific. do what he does. Yeah. Uh, but, he's, but he's doing a job that, you know, every newspaper used to have their own guy to do. And it doesn't, doesn't exist anymore uh, in that form. And, you know, I understand it. I mean, it, it, and, and I guess look back, and I, I just feel very lucky that I was able to have, you know, 20 years, especially at Sports Illustrated, which, I mean, they were almost decadent how, how much the writers were pampered. And it was a thrill to be there. I always felt a little out of my league being there, but I was lucky to be there. And and the guys who did feel entitled, man, they lived it up. They they, they spent the money. Time Inc. was like Batman. If you ever watched that show, you know, and yeah. that's when uh, everything was really, uh, you know, at its peak media-wise, print media-wise. But you know, uh, there's still a lot of great golf riding. I think in some ways the golf riding is actually better, and uh, I, I won't say collectively, but I think now. Um, you know, you just can't do a, if you're in print, you can't do a bad story. There's just too much writing on it. There's too many, uh, you know, your job is, you got you, you can't mail it in like a lot of guys, you know, could in the old days. Yeah. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying we're all better. I'm just saying that the, I think the, the, uh, the standard is a little higher now. It's uh, more I could diverse. Be Jeff might disagree, but, but I, I do think everybody gives it really a full effort all the time now. It's a more diverse media landscape, isn't it, in, in what you what's available to consume? And I wonder whether you think that has an impact on the game itself. And I suppose we talk predominantly about professional golf, but also the way golf is consumed. I mean, golf, the, the forum, uh, golf seems to me a little unique in sport in as much as it's so such a high participation rate amongst those who watch the professional game, which is not so true of most other sports. But the Golf Forum is an amazing... Clates and I are both a member of one down here called the Golf Forum, which has, you know, got some amazing discussions go on. But people can produce... Do you see that 
the media, particularly for golf, having any sort of impact on the game and the way it's played? This show, for example, I doubt this would have been a commercial success yeah, 15 years ago. Whether you think there's any sort of impact on the game from the way the media is consumed and the consumers can take part in the media well, as well. You know, I, 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 think, I think the interest level, you know, the game's problem in terms of its growth right now is, I think, most, mostly economic and, and cultural. Not, it's not about the top of the game. I mean, there's more interest. I mean, the PGA Tour rag, ratings are higher than ever. Uh, there's more interest in watching the best players than ever. Um, I, so I don't think the writing is, uh, or the lack of, you know, as many uh, uh, golf magazines perhaps, or, or uh, as many, you know, sort of long stories uh, is, is hurting the game uh, participation-wise uh, or interest-wise. Uh, you know, I think for the aficionados, they're losing something. You know, the people who, who value those things may feel like the, the coverage isn't as, as in-depth as often as they'd like it. Um, but, I, but I think the big thing that I notice is the, the players just don't need us as much. <laughs> I mean, yeah. in the old days, it, and, I, and I'm pre, pre, you know, predating myself, uh, before I, my time, it, the press was so important to the players. You know, having a good relationship with the press, cooperating with the press, being candid and open and, and, uh, and insightful with the press really elevated somebody's career and, and, and helped them pass their career. I mean, Dave Marr was the greatest example, probably. I mean, he was a wonderful talker. He was a good player. He won the PGA. But, I mean, afterwards, he had a career. And, and I'm sure he was looking at that as he was playing. Now, I mean, there's just so much, uh, there's so much lucre. There's, there's so much money. Um, that the, and the players are promoted in a different way. They have agents making deals with corporations. As long as they're on television a lot, they don't need any stories about them, uh, you know, unless they, unless they are of that of that mind, like a Jeff Ogilvie, you know, who enjoys the discourse. And there's a few guys like that, and we value them very much. But in general, you know, uh, a, a story opens up a, a, per, a player to, to time uh, commitment, to distraction, perhaps something that's written that will follow him around or, or something he doesn't, would rather control. So they'd rather do interviews on television. I understand that. Um, so it's changed in that regard. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're getting through it. I mean, I still think that people do miss long form. And even some of the players now, you, 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 you talk to them and they go, you know, I, I like those stories, those longer stories. And, hey, I'll talk to you on that one. Okay, sure. Not, not a lot, but uh, I, I think it, it goes in cycles. And right now we're in a cycle of brevity and lack of access. And I, I think if the tour, you know, starts to take itself a little too seriously, or, or I shouldn't say seriously, but, you know, Stars. players get a little, get a little entitled, uh, you know, they, they could kill the golden goose uh, by, not, by not being, I mean, not kill it, but harm it by not being as accessible. So I think access will, will grow. I really do, because I think in some ways it's reached a, a point that's uh, counterproductive to the tour. Clades, have you noticed the power shift as a player? Because I think Jaime's right there, but I think what you lose when it becomes, when the players take over their own press, which is kind of what's happened, you lose, uh, you lose some reality, I think. I mean, have you... Do you do you sense that the power shift? I mean, you know, with well, Twitter and all those sorts, of, those sorts of things. I guess you know. I guess players have got an unreasonable mistrust of the media. Probably, you know, they think that what they say will get distorted, which is, you know, they watch too much Fox News, probably. But you know, it's um, when you talk to the decent, you know, Jaime or Doug Ferguson, I mean, the guys who write golf. I mean, I'd like to think I do that here. You know, guys who write golf. You, you know, you're not in the business of trying to screw players and misinterpret what they say and 
try and you know create a story out of the story rather than just writing about them. Hmm. But you know the thing that's you know, we're going back to the original point. I mean, people in Melbourne bemoan the fact that the age doesn't really have a golf rudder anymore, and there's no golf in the papers. But you know, Jaime's right. There's more great golf riding than ever now. I mean, I, I mean, I just say, well, just go to Shuckerwood's blog. Go to you know, just go on the internet. There's, there's great golf riding everywhere. Whereas when I was a kid, the only great golf riding I read was Golf Digest used to do those long stories on you know players. Bruce Litsky or that, you know, every month to be a long story on someone. And, and Peter Thompson, I grew, up, I grew up reading Peter Thompson, who was one of the great golf writers, really. I mean, you talk about Nicholas going to the press tent and talking to the press. I mean, Thompson would go to the press tent and write a story for the age and after the third round of the, <laughs> uh, you know, the British Open. So, so I grew up, you know, with, with Peter Thompson and I suppose Don Lawrence and the local writers here, but Peter was the one great golf writer in Australia, really. Who, whose book that you organised to have sent to me, uh, Clates, I just finished reading last week, and absolutely fabulous, just a series of well, columns. Well, it's what a book. Well, just in, in fact, Jaime, we must send you a copy. Just <clears> we should. No, I look forward yeah. to that. Thank you. Yeah. No, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a friend of mine published a book on – I mean, it's really a republished – you know, it's a little along the lines of Harvey Penick's Little Red Book, but I think it's much more insightful and it's, um, it didn't – Who is sell, it, Mike? Uh, Peter Thompson's book. Oh, oh, it's Peter's. Oh, it's for us. Yeah, I, I've had a good. I, I had a good fortune once of sitting down for, with Peter, and I did a story for him on the, uh, in the memorial program, which actually has a place for long form. They do that with their honoree. They used to give us like six thousand words, so I did like a fifty-five hundred word story on Peter Thompson. Yeah. But he couldn't have been. He is fascinating. He, mm-hmm. He's a perfect golfer in so many ways, except probably physically. I mean, in other words, I don't mean that to degrade him in any way, but I mean every other part of the game. He was a master of it, don't you think? I mean, the mental oh, yeah, part yeah. and the planning part and the yeah, how to yeah, play. I mean, what a player! Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think he, you know, he he revered Tom uh, Hogan and Snead, and he stayed with them and played with them, and he saw the way they went about things, and especially well, well, especially Hogan in terms of not asking his caddy, but you know, the self reliance of making your own decisions. He he, he said, I can never understand why Sam Snead would hit the ball 20 yards over the green with the wrong club and blame his caddy. But, um, yeah, he, he was, you know, the, along with Jones, probably the greatest intellect to play the game and certainly thought about the game and played it beautifully and understood how to play the open courses where you bounce the ball on the ground, and which kind of led to his disdain of America, really, where he didn't like much having to fly the ball through the air and stop it on soft greens and, he thought it was a unsophisticated form of the game, which well, he was he's ahead was. of his time. Yeah, yeah. His perception of the game was such a so ahead of his time. And yeah, I did see him win um, two or two tournaments in '85. I think he won nine tournaments. Yeah, uh, he did. And and that's when I talked to him uh, the first time. And yeah, he was a little over my head at the time. He was really it was like a you know a PhD in golf uh, yeah. uh, class, and I was like a, an eighth grader. But uh, yeah, I've grown to appreciate it more. Uh, he he he. That's going to be a great book. Yeah. I look forward to that. We will send you. You will love the book. My my poor other yeah. half who's got no interest in golf clates has been quoted Peter Thompson at it for the last week or so while I've been yeah. reading it. I just have to read this out loud. You've got to listen to it. Just uh, fascinating stuff. Jaime, it's been fabulous to talk to you. And as always, we've gotten to about an hour and I barely feel like we've even started, but we must let you go. It has been terrific to... Uh, no, I'm sorry. I, I probably talked too much. I apologize. No, no, I, no, didn't, no. I didn't hear from Jeff at all and that's unusual because I've had dinner with him and... <laughs> 
because I'm enjoying the conversation. I'm just sitting here listening. Jeff told me uh, not long ago that what he does is he puts on the mute button and goes and pays bills online while we do the show. (laughs) I've paid no bills today. I did put it on mute because I didn't want to be heard flipping pages. He's got rent control and all he's got is a water bill. The guy doesn't spend any money. Oh, dude. It's been been fabulous to have you, Jaime. I hope you can come back one day. It's been great to chat to you. And uh, there's a million things that we'd like to hear. But thank you for taking some time today. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, thank you very much. Not at all. And of course, to you, Shaq, over there in uh, in LA, uh, nice to uh, nice to have you aboard as well. And uh, hopefully, we'll hear some more from you next time. Hey, keep yes, happy. thank you. Yes, and Clates down here in Australia, always great to have you aboard and get your thoughts, Clates, and the gift Thanks. of the, the Peter Thompson book, which you'll no doubt share with Jaime as well. And that wraps it up for uh, this episode of State of the Game. Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back to do it all again in a couple of weeks' time here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.